мамой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's podcast is the fifth in Reese's spring speaker series, Socialism, Past, Present, and Future, at the University of Pittsburgh. In this series, we've been exploring the experience of really existing socialism, grassroots socialist and communist movements, socialist-inspired economic development and state building, and visions of a socialist future from a global perspective. Ever since Deng Xiaoping officially de-radicalized China in the 1980s, debates have swirled around which path China should follow. Would it democratize? Would it embrace capitalism? Would the Communist Party's rule be able to withstand globalization and the internet? One thing few considered, Mao Zedong would make a political comeback. So to talk about the neo-Maoists, who they are and what they stand for, I turn to Jude Blanchett to understand this populist enthusiasm for the great helmsman and what it means for the present and future of Chinese communism. Jude Blanchett is the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's written for a range of publications, including Foreign Affairs and Foreign Policy, and his Chinese translations have appeared in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. He's the author of China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong, published by Oxford University Press. Here's... Jude Blanchett. So um, I'd start just to get pe- give people a sense of, of who you are um, and, and what, what is it about you. I thought just have you introduce yourself. Uh, good. Well, I'll, I'll make that very quick. Uh, just just uh, uh, I'll start at the age of, of two and work my way up. No, just kidding. Uh, uh, just maybe the the salient background is uh, I've been living, working uh, in and with China uh, since since uh, university. I I first landed in China just before uh, it joined the WTO about a month before, um, and found it then and still do uh, just utterly fascinating. Um, and so spent about a decade living in China. As you mentioned some of that some of that bio. And now spend most of my days uh, chasing the tail of U.S.-China relations, um, trying when I can to give some perspective and insight on China's domestic political situation in a uh, in a town, D.C., that uh, doesn't have much use for for granularity on on what is actually happening in uh, in Beijing. Um, but think that these questions of of intellectual currents in China. 
the meaning of, of legacy of socialism, real or imagined. I think these are really, really important to us um, as the United States formulating good, accurate policy on China. And we're obviously seeing now with the, with the coronavirus that um, we, we really do have to have a good understanding of what makes Beijing tick if we're going to be able to find a way to get through some, some of these crises. So uh, I, I won't pretend that as a think tanker, uh, you, you have too much influence uh, over what U.S. policy is, but we're, uh, we're doing our best. Do you do you find that in in that policy community around China? Because you know I'm I'm involved with Russia, so I have a, a better sense of you know people in that think tank world. And do how are um, people in DC? How are they? How do they receive the type of work that you do? Since you do have to not only you're not only publish this book, but you're also you know speaking to this more policy oriented audience. Yeah, I, you know, in, in fairness to people who are making policy, these sorts of books are difficult to translate into actionable uh, policy steps. And so, um, you know, I, we hope that really just thinking about some of these more abstract issues like, you know, legacy of socialism in China, you just hope that those filter down somehow, uh, or at least that those can work to bat down some of the existing heuristics that, uh, that policymakers assume about how China operates. Um, so instead of really just trying to sort of push a message uh, th that we need to take socialism seriously, I just rather try and layer it into some of my existing policy policy analysis. But again, to be fair, um, uh, the book that I wrote is is not really where policymakers should should be spending our time their time. It's it's our job, you know what what F. A. Hayek called the secondhand peddler of ideas. You know, it's the job of intellectuals and 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 think tankers where you can at the margin to be to be blunting sharp edges or be sharpening blunt edges with some of these more nuanced perspectives. So you do have this book, uh, China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong, which, um, you know, for someone who's not a China expert, is really interesting to think about, you know, how is th this this movement, as you call it, from the left critiquing China policy and the government. How did you personally get interested in China and the question of neo-Maoism in, in particular? Yeah, well, the, the, the first part of that question, how I get interested in China is, I, I think, is easy in the sense that almost anyone who comes into contact with the country, given its, its size and its heft, uh, understands the importance of China. I have to say, Personally, for me, what I always found interesting about it was the Communist Party. Um, in 2001, when I landed, it was thinking about the Communist Party evolving more towards, again, I was 20, so don't blame me, but more, more towards a you know, globally integrated, liberalizing, you know, more like us, westernizing political institution that was rapidly abandoning legacies and institutions of communism or socialism. That was my interest in it then. And of course, now that that, that has shifted to something quite interesting, which I wouldn't say is necessarily a, a pivot back to socialism, but something different. Um, so that that's what sustains my interest now. On the issue of, of neo-Maoism, this started at a very specific moment in China's modern history. This was around 2011. And if we remember back then, there was a, a very charismatic uh, Communist Party secretary in a in a metropolitan area in central China, Chongqing, and his name was Bo Xilai. I think everyone probably, even if you don't follow China that closely, probably remembers this because um, this his his downfall led to the most significant political scandal uh, in China in modern history. Um, 
there was a group of individuals who were, were fervent supporters of Boshi Lies. And they had created websites and they were holding offline events, um, really promoting this style of po populist, um, uh, populist kind of uh, shallow revolutionary politics. And I was living at the Be in Beijing at the time, and I just thought it was so interesting that you had this group of relatively young people who, again, my assumption at the time had been that China was rapidly abandoning any, any, any professed belief in socialism. Here you had these young people going out and building this, this network of websites where they were emblazoning it with slogans of Mao Zedong and the imagery of Mao Zedong and likening this, this uh, besuited party secretary in Chongqing to a kind of a new revolutionary leader. And that, that challenged my assumptions about China's trajectory. And I just began um, one day going to the bookstore of this neo-Maoist website uh, or organization uh, called Utopia, and I was hooked. You know, the, from the moment I walked in and, you know, in the third ring road in northwest Beijing, uh, this, this, you know, this crappy little bookstore, but with tomes by Lenin and Stalin and Mao, I thought, how is it in 2011 that, that this exists? And, and that was the start of the journey. Huh, really? I mean, yeah, it's it's nice to stumble upon these things on on accident and be kind of blown away and say, oh, what what is all this about? Um, so how would you define neo-Maoism? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And, and one that's really hard to specifically um, uh, pin down. And I, I don't want to um, I, I don't want to sort of, as they say, fight the scenario, but we'll just say there's really neo-Maoisms. Um, and I wrote about a specific manifestation of neo-Maoism. But if I was going to kind of bring these all together, I would say neo-Maoism is a very specific strain of the leftist critique of the post-Mao, post-Mao Zedong economic reforms. And, and one that is kind of highly nationalistic, um, very small C conservative, and we can talk about what that means in a minute, um, and very pro-statist. Um, and I, and I want to mention that it, you sometimes in in popular reporting on neo Maoism see it lumped together with new leftism and other varieties of of socialist leftist critique. And I think that's 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 inaccurate and unfair to to other varieties of leftism. Um, so although we tend to have constricted and and shrunk the space for leftist discourse in China, I think it's important to point out that there are differing voices and differing perspectives. But neo-Maoism is a very state-first, pro-party, pro-bureaucratic Communist Party organization that is that is very um, anti-internationalist, um, which is just a way, another way of saying it, high, highly nationalist. I want you to kind of talk about these terms that you brought up, uh, both the, you know, what does nationalism mean and this small c conservatism that you, you mentioned? Yeah. Um, again, we, we could we could spend a whole you know hour on varieties of nationalism in China um, because there are as as the word nationalism is contested, you know, uh, just just uh, um, in in any country in terms of what we're talking about it in terms of the strain of nationalism. Um, nationalism has been a constant in Chinese politics going back well more than well more than a century, and indeed the Communist Party of China when it was first uh, when it was first formed in 1921 came out of a specific instance of Marxist-informed nationalism um, that was looking to put uh, state uh, Chinese sovereignty first, in, again, in an era when China felt like it was dealing with imperialist powers who were looking to come and carve up the country and the nation. Um, that strain has been 
particularly virulent throughout China's 100 years and has led to almost every instance of mass protest in China has in many ways started from um, the, the, a nationalist frustration with the Chinese government's ability to protect the, the sovereignty uh, of the Chinese people. After 1991 or 92, however, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, nationalism began to take on a highly xenophobic uh, um, element of it. And this is what, this is what neo-Maoism was born out of. And, and, in, and specifically, um, xenophobic nationalism that imbues neo-Maoism came out of specific reaction to uh, U.S.-China relations and the deterioration after 1989, the Tiananmen Square massacre, when the United States slapped sanctions on uh, on China. 1996, when you had the the famous Taiwan Straits incident, where the United States sent a couple uh, aircraft carrier uh, aircraft carrier battle group through the Taiwan Straits uh, after China had launched a couple missiles over it. 1999, when there was the accidental NATO bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, and then 2001, there was the famous EP3 spy plane incident where a uh, U.S. jet and a Chinese jet smashed into each other off the southern Chinese island of, of, of Hainan. So this, this strain of nationalism was very specific to um, a frustration, antagonism about the, the perceived interference of the United States, but began calling on the Communist Party to essentially stand up, step up to um, uh, an imperialist U.S. power. And this is where it began to draw um, a narrative from the Mao era, when in its very stripped down, simplified version, you know, pre-1949, pre China was weak, broken, and disparate. After Mao came to power, and within a decade or so, China had fought the United States to uh, a draw in the Korean War. China had gone from being the second position to the USSR to arguably being its, its, its peer in the, in the Sino-Soviet split. China had developed its atomic bomb in 19, starting in 1956. So there's this idea that Mao represents the full incarnation of this strong state nationalism that is dedicated specifically to standing up to the, the lone superpower of the United States. Now, is this nationalism also have an isolationist idea to it? Or, you know, what is the, the neo-Maoist view towards China's attempts to, you know, develop a, a economic projects in Africa or the One Belt One Road project, how does it how does it view that? Yeah, that's interesting. the 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 um, the pushback there has been less that um, China should not be as internationalist. Typically, the framing for neo Maoists are as long as state treasure is being used for wealth and power under the under the guidance of the Communist Party, there's there's tolerance and leeway for it. Where 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 Belt and Road Initiative has come in for some pushback is, and it's very similar to uh, some of the criticism of, let's say, nation building here in the United States of why are we spending blood and treasure to build roads in Afghanistan when we've got crumbling highways here in the United States? Um, that strain of thinking does exist in China, and it's become more vocal as China has gone through this now prolonged, nearly decade-long experience of, of yearly economic uh, uh, slowdown. So as China has begun to experience capital scarcity, Questions are emerging about well, why are we throwing largesse at port facilities in Greece when when we're dealing with our own endemic poverty here here in China? So there's been that more populist pushback to it, um, but there's been less if uh, there's there's been less an isolationist strain out ahead of where the party the party is itself on 
its own version of isolationism, which is essentially we don't meddle in other countries' uh, affairs. Now we could we could nitpick that, but that's generally the party's line. What is the what is the vision of the ideal future of the international order for neo Maoists? Like, what do they have a a uh, how do they understand the world? How do they want it to look in the future? And do they have a foreign policy? It's primarily a domestic political movement and one that is oriented not towards building a, a global uh, a, a global order, but what one that is primarily about keeping the Communist Party on roughly the right train tracks. And again, I and this is an outdated analogy, but it's one that still helps me is thinking about the Tea Party. Um, imagine your very, very, very good question, by the way, but imagine your question about the Tea Party. You know, sort of what would their, what, what would their, were they looking for a radical transformation of globalization or transition to some form of global capitalism? I guess so, but they're not spending a lot of time thinking about that. What they're typic, what they're trying to do is basically say, the ruling party has gone too far in the wrong direction and we're going to drag it back. And that's mostly what neo-Maoists are, are about. And so to sort of slice your question into two, I would say most of their vision would be for a regional hegemony for China and a circumscribed, circumspect U.S., which is put in its place, playing much more of, I think they would be happy if the United States was its own regional hegemon, but was pulled way back from its current sort of um, global arraignment, uh, uh, um, and you were seeing U.S. military forces out of Asia Pacific. You were seeing Chinese companies play the role in China and regionally that U.S. and, and Western companies are now playing. But more importantly, you were seeing a the vision of the century-old vision of wealth and power, as in a, a, a strong China under the firm uh, leadership of the Communist Party that was dictating and setting the terms for China, building a, participating in and building global institutions on China's own terms, rather than simply being a taker of global institutions, being a maker of those. Um, at, the, at the margin, some of the more radical neo-Maoists who do talk about a global order, talk about um, um, a, a, a Maoist vision for exporting revolution, around the globe. And I should say, actually, to be fair, Xi Jinping gave a speech early last year, which we've translated, and actually, we're going to be um, putting out pretty soon a, a very lengthy speech uh, on the uh, 150th anniversary of the, of the publication of the Communist Manifesto. In it, interestingly, Xi Jinping does call for a renewal of global Marxist revolution. Um, and I don't mean that to be, to be scary. I'm not, this isn't a sort of Steve Bannon. Um, I don't think, I don't think, but there was something really interesting about the, that legacy still existing and still being in, within internal party discourse. This speech was given a year before it was finally made made public at a, at a, at a study session of the Communist Party. So there are still some in the neo-Maoist movement who see a globalized vision for a Chinese-led communist order. And they do crucially say, there's no one else who's going to do this because every other Marxist state has either collapsed or in the case of Cuba, Vietnam, doesn't have what they call composite national power, sufficient composite national power to be a driving force of the revolution. But one last thing is Julia Lovell, the, the, the British historian from University of London Birkbeck, has a really great book called Maoism, A Global History, um, where she talks about some of the extent 
Legacies of Maoism, and she's got a good chapter on the neo neo Maoists, which I would which I would recommend for anyone who wants to kind of put this in a global context. Uh, so you you begin your book with with kind of going over Mao's death and the impact of that, and then the power struggle that put Deng Xiaoping into power. Um, how is this period? How did this period set the narrative for Mao's legacy and memory as as China moved beyond him? The most interesting thing for me in, in doing the research for this book was realizing um, that China didn't go through this initial purge of Maoism, as I think I had initially believed. Um, again, if I were to just take a sort of relatively flat, superficial narrative that I, I at least I was carrying around until a few years ago, Mao dies in September 1976, and the country immediately goes through this catharsis, you know, down on their knees, kissing the ground. You know, thankful that they're they're done with the Maoist tyranny. Many did do that for sure, but one, but a group of individuals who decidedly did did not do that is party elite. And within moments of Mao Zedong dying, um, the the party made a decision, and this is a small decision, but one that's quite symbolic. Um, Mao had explicitly called to be cremated. This is good scientific socialism. There's no need for the spirit spiritual worship of the corpse. Um, but immediately the party leaders understood that, that Mao's body and Mao's presence was going to be a powerful sustaining stabilizer as China went through this initially quite volatile period of, of asking this big existential question, which is, after three decades of only having Mao, what's next? And so we can take that as a paradigm, that idea to sort of keep the body as a paradigm of, of the, the, the party elite for the first few years understanding that they were going to have to now negotiate a balance. And that balance was between, we can't continue on the line that Mao had taken us, which had led to economic ruin. But on the other hand, we can't ab abandon Mao's legacy. And I think, honestly, in a way, China's still going through that tension of, we know it well here in the United States, where we have these perennial discussions about the legacy of the founding fathers. And um, so we understand the sort of symbolic significance of, of the origins of the country and the leaders who represent that. China ha was and is still going through that. So, so you know, in those early years, the, the body was one decision. And then another you know, the crucial decision was 1981 in the summer, under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, the party puts forward this very long, turgid historical exegesis on, on what they call certain questions on the history of the uh, Republic of China since its founding in 1949, a title that just rolls off the tongue. Um, but this was the party's way of saying, we're done with historical debate. We have decided what the legacy of Mao is, which put this past us, it's time to now move on. That's the document that you hear people sometimes reference as the one where they made the, what they call the, in Chinese, the Sanqi Kai, the 70-30 split, that Mao was 70% good, 30% bad. It never says that, but nonetheless, that's what that's the document where they say, look, Mao's accomplishments were 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 more than his deficiencies. And what we went through in the Cultural Revolution is really that's later era Mao. That's old Mao, that's senile Mao. We need to look at Mao in, in this great broad historical arc of one who fought for and unified this country, brought us to great power position. And sure, in his later years he went a bit nutty, but that's because he was susceptible to radical left, leftist forces, including his own wife, Jiang Qing. But, but that sort of 1981 historical resolution was, was the party's way under Deng Xiaoping of really drawing a line and saying, we're done with historical debate. Um, 
that we've protected the legacy of Mao as much as we needed to. Now let's move on to get rich. Now, how does, you know, with it, and you could perhaps talk about uh, Deng's reforms in this context, you know, they, they come forward too, and I'm assuming this is part of connected to what you're talking about, they come forward with these four principle, four cardinal principles, which are, and I'll just read them. Number one is, we must keep to the socialist road. Two, we must uphold the dictatorship of the proletariat. Three, we must uphold the leadership of the Communist Party. And four, we must uphold Marxism, Leninism, and Mao Zedong thought. So how did, you know, with these principles put forward, how did Deng's, what were Deng's reforms and how did they fit into these principles? Yeah, maybe just a, a quick word on the context for those principles. Um, Deng Xiaoping really fully formally came to power. We began to feel the real presence of his power in late 1978. Um, and 1978 is, is when China now officially uh, marks the beginning of what they call the reform and opening period, right? So, so December 19. 19- 78, which was, there was this plenary session of the, of the Communist Party Central Committee um, up through today. This is, this, this is the area, era that they officially mark as reformist China. Right after that December meeting, they held a, a, what's called the Theory Conference in, in early 1979. I hate, I, sorry, I don't want to bore everyone with going through the, the history of Communist Party meetings, but I just want to mention this one quickly because we think a lot about the, the 1978 economic reform meeting but it's also important to understand this following meeting, which is Deng said effectively, all right, the 1978 meeting, we got the economic reforms correct. Now we got to think about ideology, right? And so they hold this big meeting, they bring everybody together. And it's the first time since the death of Mao, they've, the party elite have really been together to sort of argue and hash out the, the ideological component of this. At the very end of that meeting, Deng comes down and gives this hardline speech, the four cardinal principles speech, which you gave. And essentially, I look at that as Deng saying, okay, we're going to have to modernize. We're probably going to have to allow in what Deng would call spiritual pollution, you know, Western bourgeois ideas of capitalism, markets, materialism. But we got to set some guardrails. We essentially need to make sure that the party and, and how Deng was defining it, the socialist system, remains intact from this external interference. He was also trying to signal to some of his more sort of hard, hardline conservative um, uh, uh, members of his coalition, I hear you. Don't worry, we're not going to abandon. Um, we're not going to abandon the institutions that the party has spent the better part of four decades building. We're going to protect the party. We're going to protect our, our ideological base, but we're going to have to make some reforms. So this was his way of kind of, you know, Dunn was a really magnificent balancer between um, those who wanted to take the system forward and modernize it economically, which meant exposing it to some Western bourgeois ideas, bourgeois ideas and to, to conservatives. He, he really was constantly balancing. And that four cardinal principles was not only a balance, it was his own way of setting guardrails. Um, so if, if that's where we kind of start, and just very quickly, what we then see is this the first initial decade where China moves um, cautiously but aggressively to be dismantling some elements of the previous socialist infrastructure whether that's collective, uh, uh, collective uh, agriculture, whether that's freeing up mobility so people can start moving around the country by um, decreasing some of the restrictions on what was called the Donway system, which was the unit you were attached to, an SOE or collective farm. That's where we begin seeing some cautious tentative steps to allow private entrepreneurship. Uh, so small businesses that could hire no more than seven or eight people and flirting with some ideas of, of private property. Um, 
that's the story we all know very well. That's our kind of very stripped down, simplified story. But what I found in looking at that first decade is the guardrails of the four cardinal principles were always there. And when it felt like the system was moving too far in a kind of a, a open liberal direction, conservatives were always there and the four cardinal principles were always there. It was the the shadow, so to speak, of, of the reform policies. Out of this context, you get the first beginnings of a neo-Maoism. So uh, how do they emerge out of this period of reforms? What, it, what kind of sparks their, uh, you know, taking a critical position? You know, as, as communist systems around the world were reforming, they were, they were um, we, we were seeing many benefits of that as you were dismantling some of the more onerous elements of, uh, uh, of state control. But it was also creating a lot of losers, right? So, so there were many who were finding they were they were extraordinarily disadvantaged as some of these systems in Eastern Europe and in China were were rapidly moving in some areas of dismantling in, in infrastructure and, and institutions. So opposition was always there, and in fact, in 1979, Deng Xiaoping talks about um, conservative elements of opposition who are, as he called it, waving the flag of Mao to oppose our reforms. In other words. We're using the legacy of Mao to say, you know, let, let's not move too far away from Mao. So opposition was always there in the 1980s and, and especially into the 1990s. It was brewing, it was building, um, but it usually could only find manifestations in fairly um, old, slow technology like print publications. So in the same way you had sort of Samizdat, liberal Samizdat in the Soviet Union, in, in the 1990s in China, you now as it was moving much more rapidly towards market reforms in the post-Tiananmen period by dismantling SOE, state-owned enterprises, laying off tens of millions of people, the, the tone of opposition was really, really speeding up. And it, it manifested in sort of some of these big creed de corps publications that were coming out, underground publications saying the Communist Party is abandoning socialism. Um, in some more turgid but official publications, dense theoretical journals, you were seeing articles coming out saying liberals have kidnapped the Communist Party. Um, this reached its, its, its peak or its crescendo in 2001, right when China was looking to enter the WTO, when then General Secretary of the Communist Party, Zhang Zemin, said, I'm sick of you guys. I'm shutting down every single one of your publications. And that's the story of when neo-Maoism begins. Because if that had happened 10 years earlier in the early 1990s, when shutting down the printing press was shutting down the printing press, right? That would have made it extraordinarily hard. But something interesting was happening in the early 2000s, and that was a revolution in, in information technology. Crucially, you had the internet now moving its way into China. And what's interesting here is generally, I think our thought was that um, uh, information technology, the internet was going to act as this universal acid that was going to eat away at 20th century ideas of state control, Marxism, Maoism, Stalinism. And what the internet actually did in China is it gave a second life to those ideas. And neo-Maoism that we're talking about in the book, and generally when we talk about the neo-Maoist movement, we're talking about something which emerged in 2001, two, and three out of the group of intellectuals who were, who were cut off by Jiang Zemin, uh, 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 shutting off access to their publications. And instead of sitting around and scratching their heads, they said, you know what, there's this new internet thing. And so they began through a, a, a burgeoning ecosystem of websites and bulletin boards, finding a new voice that was that was advocating for a socialist legacy in the digital era. Talk about who some of these people you know are, and and who what types of 
pers- people try to gravitate towards this uh, n- neo Maoist movement. I mean, you mentioned the fact that of the losers who or people who believe in the socialist project in in China um, from a Maoist perspective. So, it, give us a picture of some of these people. Yeah, in the, in the early days of this two thousand and two two thousand and three sort of rebirth of of leftism online, it was an extraordinarily vibrant, heterodox community with a lot of intermingling of what would later become discrete and and siloed leftist voices. At that early period, they were all intermingling. So you were seeing labor rights activists who were posting on boards where you'd see some of these sort of strong state nationalist leftists. You were seeing some of the more famous uh, new left intellectuals like like Wang Hui or Cui Zhiyuan who were importing ideas of socialism that they had learned while stu- getting their PhDs in Cornell or at Oxford. These ideas were coming. So it was a real interesting melting pot of various critiques of the, the economic reform policies. And remember, the, the, this early part, there had been a one-two, sorry, the early part of the 2000s, there had been the one-two punch of extraordinarily thoroughgoing and significant layoffs in the state sector had upwards of 40 million out of work and entrance into the the World Trade Organization, which was seen as the final full abandonment of socialism by the Communist Party. So these folks were coming together, both old uh, old and young, uh, former Communist Party officials, retired Communist Party officials, and university students um, coming together to say, what the heck do we do now? And it was really out of that conversation that you began to be a splintering of answers, right? So if, if the first two or three years was simply asking questions and essentially getting a feel for the tools, the next question is coming up with answers. And that's where a bifurcation occurred. Talk about the relationship this movement has with the Chinese government, because, you know, there seems to be a kind of the way you describe it it seems to be a a strange relationship on the one hand you know there is a a tolerance of sorts but on the other hand there is form ways to try to like you know quell the 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 rise of this with the increase of this movement or its activities um so talk about the relationship between the neo-maoists and the chinese communist party leadership Well, to begin with, the, the, what we would call tolerance is really born out of the Communist Party's uh, inability to figure out what the heck to do about the Internet. Um, so, you know, the story that we know, starting around 2008-9, where you started to see the really sophisticated surveillance and censorship capabilities, where the, the Communist Party decided anybody who was part of civil society needed to, to act within sort of stricter boundaries. It was really the Wild West for the first couple of years. And that's what led to some of the more heady promulgations by, you know, the parachuting journalists from the West who would go in and say, like, you know, classic Tom Friedman style, um, you know, the Internet is the death knell of the Communist Party. You know, you could you could you could you could make a a fairly tall pile of prognostications like that. But it really did feel like that in that period. And and I was there at the time and really outside of the New York Times was blocked and and the BBC was blocked. But it was really out out in the open there. so, so it's we need to disaggregate how the party was looking at leftism and how the party was looking at online agitation. In terms of how it was looking at leftism, um, the the connection nodes between the party state and leftism were much more robust back then and and more heterodox. Um, 
you saw many who were still within the party apparatus who were likewise frustrated with the, the, the neoliberal direction that the party was taking. And so actively throwing their support behind these, these emergent groups like Workers Online, Utopia, Left Bank, some of these early organizations, they were writing articles on these. Um, that shifted throughout the 2000s as the, the online activist movement began to get um, more of a voice and, and become more organized. It began to rear its destabilizing head to the Communist Party. This reached a crescendo with the Boshi Lai period in 2010, 2011. But, uh, and not to, not to bore anybody, but, but in, the, in the book, I talk about a number of cases throughout the 2000s where there was really effective organization, specifically around some labor rights issues where uh, this group of pan leftists came together and were going from online to offline activism that was actually putting pressure on the, the party. And what they were doing is they were putting pressure from the left. And, and, and a point I should have made earlier is probably the thesis for the book is a, is a quote Deng, Deng Xiaoping said in 1992. He said, we're worried about the right, about, lib, uh, about um, uh, rightists, but we're really worried about the left. And what he meant is the left could always be redder than thou. It could always outflank the party from the left on the party's own terms. The party says we're socialist, we're egalitarian, we look out for workers' rights. So someone who's standing just to the left of you saying, are you, really, um, is always dangerous to the party. Uh, again, think of it in the way that the, the Tea Party here in the United States sort of occupied it to the right of Republicans, saying, you guys aren't capitalists, you're rhinos, you're, you're sellouts, you're weak need, and it kind of dragged the, the, the Republican Party to the right. Imagine the same force working on the Communist Party uh, in China in, in the 2000s. The difference being um, the Communist Party has very little appetite for any volatility or any destabilizing force. And while it gave neo-Maoists a bit more leeway because they were standing in the streets holding up banners of Mao and it's a little bit harder to aim the water cannon at them, um, once the destabilization really reached its, its crescendo with Bo Xilai and a um, a, a more active campaign to enter into the, the elite power structure. That's when the party said, we're done with this enough. And that marks a different shift in neo-Maoism after 2011, 2012. The way you describe it, neo-Maoism seems very much a, a, a reaction, right? It's a reaction to, you know, the changes in China. Um, but what do they stand for? What, 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 is, what do they imagine China to be if not... You know, if you know, what does their future China look like once they get rid of all of these, you know, capitalists and entrepreneurs, et cetera, and liberals and et cetera? Yeah, that's a good question. And and um, there's two strains of neo-Maoism that you see at work still today. One, one is a, a more radical faction that says this Communist Party is so thoroughly abandoned any pretense to socialism. It's capitalists dressed in red. Um, we got to be done with this. And you do see some of this more radical activism that still is there. Although, as everyone knows, with the surveillance state working today, um, everyone is, is under the gaze of the panopticon state in China. It makes any sort of activism difficult. What I would call the kind of mainstream voice on neo-Maoism in terms of what their platform is, it's actually not that much different from what they're getting from Xi Jinping right now. Um, Imagine you were a neo-Maoist in 2012, and you felt you had a party which, which was embarrassed of the sickle and hammer, which had 
decided it was going to disinvest or deinvest from state-owned enterprises, which had um, lived up to Deng Xiaoping's maxim of uh, hiding your brightness and biding your time, which is to the neo-Maoists just another way of saying you're too scared to stand up to the West. Um, imagine that you had no um, no uh, focus on poverty alleviation uh, in China and that you were just seeing the rich get richer. Um, you're, they're much happier now under Xi Jinping than they have been under any previous leader. And so if we remember that the, the vision that they had of when China was at its sort of fullest manifestation was an idealized version of Mao standing up to the world, standing up for, for the Communist Party. Um, they feel like they're getting that under, under Xi Jinping right now. Um, I should also say, though, in fairness, though, that as with any marginalized movement, especially any marginalized leftist movement, um, most of it is spent on... Uh, degrees of difference, which, which look totally irrelevant to most outside of observers. So there's fierce debates within neo-Maoism on things which to me look absurdly unimportant about you know, shades of, of neo-Maoism. So I'm, I want to be fair that I'm giving a really dumbed down sort of vision of what they stand for. How is neo-Maoism a help and a hindrance to Xi Jinping's ideology of the Chinese dream? Uh, hindrance first. Um, Neo-Maoism, like any other civil society group, left or right, has um, been almost completely neutered after two, 2012. Um, Neo-Maoism will always have the possibility of, of pushing back against the party. A, a really great example of this is, has anyone been following the, the ongoing labor protests? Well, there's always labor protests in China, but the, specifically the ones in, in Guangdong province where you've seen a an alliance between a, a, a elite college students who are, are, are actual Marxists and, and disaffected workers, especially at a, at a few factories in Southern China. Neo-Maoists became involved in that um, and some of them were arrested. Um, I would say Yun Yang at the Financial Times wrote an absolutely fantastic uh, long piece on this that you can, you can look up if you want just a really great sympathetic understanding of what's going on there. But that hints at where You've never fully quieted the neo-Maoist critique of the party when they feel like it's straying too far from, from its roots. And in the case of cracking down and arresting actual Marxists who are helping actual disaffected laborers, that still rubs up against the neo-Maoists. Where have they been? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sean. Just quickly, where have they been helpful? Neo-Maoists now, the permitted space for neo-Maoists are essentially the, the, the brown shirts of the Communist Party online. Um, in 2013, Xi Jinping had been in power for less than a year. He unveiled what he called the mass line campaign. And part of it was a, a, a battle against uh, historical nihilism. Historical, anyone who studies Soviet Union knows a lot about historical nihilism, but in the, in the communist CCP version, it basically just means anyone who's doing independent historical research that questions the, the standing and credibility of the Communist Party. So if you're looking to do research on the Great Leap Forward and the actual number who starved to death, if you're looking to research on the CCP's role in World War II and questioning uh, how effective the CCP was in fighting against the Japanese, you would be a historical nihilist. The neo-Maoists now spend a lot of their time roving around the internet looking for instances of historical nihilism and then uh, doxing these people, um, calling them out, haranguing them, harassing them. Um, calling if they find any novels or, or online articles that have instances of historical of their own definition of historical nihilism, um, 
they crowdsource a sort of angry reaction. They report these people to, to officials. So Xi Jinping has had to do less to purify the ideological sphere online, owing to this self-organized force of neo-Maoists who shared that vision already, but also because this is one of the few areas where they have uh, space to operate. You just see them really crowding that crowding that that market. So we talk about how unhealthy intellectual discourse has been in China uh, over the past uh, during the Xi Jinping era. Part of that has been top level policies. Part of that has been because um, I don't want to be political here, but imagine you had well, imagine you had the alt right who basically were around full well they are who are allowed full reign to basically just be going around the internet sort of doxing people without any counterbalancing force. That's what you, that's what you have in China. And talk a bit like about the the general demographics. This is another question that's being asked in our chat. Um, you know, are, what are what are their ages? I mean, they seem pretty internet savvy. What is their kind of social their class status? Is it a is it mostly an urban phenomenon? Is it rural? And if you have any sense of, you know, how many numbers of people who are involved in this? Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a fantastic question and one I'm afraid there's no good answer for. Part of that is because neo Maoism is not a um, it's not a card carrying membership movement where you can demarcate neo Maoist from non neo Maoist. So you could do things by proxy, which is how many people are visiting Utopia, right? Um, um, but that's an imperfect number because I'm not a neo Maoist and I visit Utopia. Um, 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 so we don't have really good data on this. We used to have data where neo-Maoists were, were publishing um, visitor statistics to some of their websites. So, for example, Utopia self, uh, self-published that they were getting 500,000 unique visitors a year as of 2012. Um, I don't entirely believe that, but even if we sort of say that's a few magnitudes of order off, that's still tens of thousands, if not 100,000 people who are, who are visiting the website. Um, so there's been no really good polling on this, partly because, as everyone knows who does social science work on China, it's, a, it's, it's difficult to do this. So we don't have a good size there. Same, I would unfortunately say, with demographics. Um, my anecdotal interactions with people have been, you see, really two buckets of neo-Maoists. One are um, younger, more nationalistic uh, students who are looking for permissible venues to to organize, agitate, and and find material. And neo-Maoism has been an important source for that. And really old um, uh, ex-officials who are reminiscing about the good old days. Um, but with the latter group, many of these still have uh, juice in the, in the existing party state apparatus because, so for example, the former head of the organization department, which is the kind of HR for the entire Communist Party. It's a very powerful organ, a guy named Zhang Chuenjing. He was the head of the organization department throughout the 1990s. He's frequently turning up at Utopia events and writing articles for their website. So although he's an octogenarian, he still has a pretty important connection nodes to the party state apparatus. Um, So I would say those are the two primary buckets, but um, this is a long way of me saying Great question. I don't know. You know, one of the things I was fascinated uh, in reading your book is their relationship with North Korea and how they they organize tours and they even meet with, you know, outside of some sort of or a quasi-official meetings with North Korean officials. How did they, you know, talk about that relationship? 
Yeah, the, 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 there's a phenomenon called red tourism, um, which is now actually, I should have mentioned how a lot of neo-Maoists make their money. Um, red tourism is this um, way of sort of channeling uh, channeling dollars and, 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 and activity towards ways that reify the, the, the legitimacy of the party state. So you can do red tourism domestically in China where you would go to Zuni or Yan'an sort of former strongholds of the party as it was in its formative years of fighting the Japanese or, or the KMT. But one of the areas that, that's been sanctioned for red tourism is North Korea. And something interesting is going on there. So you've got, you've got waves of Chinese who have been going to North Korea on these state-sanctioned red tourist trips. Um, they go and they visit the grave of Mao Zedong's son, Mao Anying, who was bombed to death uh, by, by the Americans in the Korean War. But really they're going because it's a statement to the CCP and it's a statement to the United States. It's a statement to the CCP because, again, this idea of sitting to the left of the party and pointing out the distance between the party and its revolutionary roots. Um, these connections with North Korea have been a way of, 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 of highlighting the distance that China, that China has gone. Um, it's, it's also a statement to the United States because it's trying to show that there's a, a, a anti-Western imperialist bloc which still has solidarity, internationalist solidarity. Um, so they, go, they do trips to Cuba, to Laos, to Vietnam, to some of the existing communist states. Um, but what's interesting about the North Korea one is um, there's been activities between neo-Maoists and the North Korean state, what you would call kind of track 1.5, which China doesn't allow for anyone else when any other countries, especially a relationship as sensitive as DPRK. Um, so it really just points to the unique status that neo-Maoists had. Now, I should say that ain't happening anymore. Um, some of these, some of the activities between neo-Maoists and and the DPRK or DPRK officials um, have been cut off. But the fact that they were allowed to do this relatively late uh, shows, shows the special status that they had. How they under, and, and this, this is connected to the red tourism, their relationship to the communist past. So their relationship to say the legacy of the Soviet Union, do they see themselves as now the standard bearers of, uh, of international communism? And how do they regard you know, you mentioned this this kind of doxing of of the historical nihilists. How do how do they regard? How does China's communist past and even beyond that play into their identity as neo Maoists? And there's a lot of good stuff written by this about this. By the way, um, just as a as a contextual note, the legacy of the Soviet Union looms large over the Communist Party in general, and I think very few topics have been. Uh, are as integral to, to sort of deep political discourse as the legacy of the Soviet Union, specifically because the Communist Party does not want to end up like the Soviet Union. And we talked about this issue of historical nihilism, for example. Um, the the Ur case of nihilism is 1950, 1956 Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. That's the original sin. And it's the original, by the way, Deng Xiaoping was in Moscow. Um, and, and was not in the 20th Party Congress, but was, was, on, was on the premise when it happened, and so brought back news of Khrushchev's betrayal. Um, that was the Ur sin, and really it was ine inevitable that the Soviet Union was going to collapse because, and this is a, a, a direct quote from Xi Jinping, uh, right before he came to office, he said, no one was man enough in the Soviet Union to stand up for its principles. Um, their, their 
their story of why the Soviet Union collapsed is not one of economic malaise, institutional collapse. It was one of values. Specifically, it was people stopped fighting for uh, the underlying beliefs of the Soviet Union. It started with denou denouncing Stalin in 1956, it, it, and, it, and it sort of the final death knell was, was Gorbachev, and it was basically saying we don't believe in we don't believe in the legacy of socialism anymore. And then it was inevitable. Communist Party of China has spent uh, untold number of hours and dollars uh, performing an autopsy on the Soviet Union. Books are produced every year. Studies are produced every year. They do studies on organizational atrophy within within the CPSU to look up, look at how. Um, how an organizational integrity faltered. They look at they look at ideology. They look at nationalism within the Soviet Union. Um, they still spend a lot of time looking at this. Um, so do the, so do the neo Maoists, and they focus much more on the ideological realm. And it it very closely overlaps with that quote from Xi Jinping. So if if you want to slander someone in the neo Maoist world, you call them Khrushchev or you call them Gorbachev. Um, there could not be two dirtier words in Chinese, because these are people who uh, gave up on the Soviet Union. And one of the ways that you attack, if you want to, uh, current Soviet leaders, or excuse me, current Communist Party of China leaders, is you liken them to Khrushchev or Gorbachev. You basically say, these are not believers in, in communism. These are not believers um, in socialism. A lot of the historical nihilist attack dog work that is being done by the neo-Maoists is in anything sympathetic or anything flirts with the correctness of Glasnost um, uh, or Perestroika, or looks to have a revisionist account of the 20th Party Congress in 1956. Um, so this looms extraordinarily large. And to get to your the very the, the question about do they see themselves as the only inheritors? Yes, because this the Soviet Union decided to abandon socialism. There's the the, the question of Putin is interesting though, um, and, and I don't want to belabor that discussion, but but. Um, because it's seen that here's someone who's fighting to claw back the, the legacy uh, of the Soviet Union. Um, the, the quote of Putin that sort of the collapse of the Soviet Union was, was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century is emblazoned on the forehead of every, of every neo-Maoist. Um, and crucially, China is increasingly mimicking the cult of World War II that Putin has revived. So starting in, starting as immediately after Xi Jinping came to power, he has been reviving a cult of World War II, burnishing the credentials of the CCP in World War II. And this is a fact. The World War II in Communist Party historiography used to start in 1937 to 1945. They have technically lengthened the war. It now starts in 1931. Why, 19, not, why 1931? Because that's when the, the CCP can first be found to have gotten to be fighting the Japanese before the KMT. Um, so, so there's a lot to there's a lot of great sort of comparative work I think that can be done between how Putin and the current CCP are both um, thinking about the legacy of the Soviet Soviet Union. What is their intellectual relationship with other Marxisms of the 20th century and even today with the, uh, you know, the new left in China or even the the new left that's developing now, you know, in Europe, in the United States and elsewhere, or even with the, the pink tide in, in um, Latin America? It's a fairly insular movement. Um, it's insular in the same way that actually um, um, cynicized Marxism has always been a fairly insular movement because it's come from a position of um, 
we were once a great power. Um, we will regain the throne. It's it's a similar, I think, a pathology the United States has where we we're not all we're not looking outward for uh, uh, for imports into our intellectual discourse. They often emerge uh, domestically and then are, are are exported outward. Neo Maoism does not spend a, a lot of time interrogating other other isms or or other Marxisms. Um, you only see uh, writings about um, other forms of um, uh, Marxism or socialism in the context of other countries or regimes fighting back against U.S. imperialism, what, what the neo-Maoists call U.S. imperialism. Um, so certainly in Latin, Latin America with, with, with Chavez and Maduro, um, certainly in, you still see some discussion of, uh, of, of Maoism in the context of the Noxalites, but it's, it's very shallow. Um, and I would say this is primarily a, a inward, um, uh, relatively xenophobic nationalist form of, 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 uh, of, of Marxism. If you could talk a bit more about the relationship with, um, with the labor movement in China. I mean, you did, you mentioned that there was a, an alliance around some of the protests, uh, the labor uprisings. Um, can you talk a bit more about, you know, the, the, the question is, what is their position on post-industrial Rust Belt that has developed in northeastern China and Manchuria? Do they feel that factory jobs need to come back to China? Labor issue, I think, has probably been the most consistent catalyst for leftist opinion in China since the beginning of the, the market reforms in the late 1970s. It's been the catalyst for almost every strain of leftism, including uh, neo-Maoism. Um, Neo-Maoist as a movement really solidified and built out of two issues. One was privatization of state-owned assets to, um, to former management. This is, this is a story we've seen play out in lots of post-communist systems, asset stripping. The second is treatment of, of laborers. Um, um, the, the, and this has been one of the issues which the Neo-Maoists have not um, um, have not gone along with even Xi, Jin, Xi Jinpingism, um, that they have been very consistent on uh, human rights abuses to the point where they've been actively involved in protesting uh, uh, some of these some of these abuses. So, in the case of of the recent outbreak two years ago of uh, of um, of uh, protest down in in Guangdong Province and then the Marxist student participation, you can find. Um, famous uh, neo-Maoist activists on the front lines getting arrested. Um, so I think this is, um, this is for them a canary in a coal mine issue. This is one, if there was ever going to be a more resolute split between neo-Maoists and the CCP, it would be over the lab labor issue. It's by far the most contentious. Um, so um, uh, I think this is, uh, just shows you the, the deep, deep legacy of uh, Communist Party focus on labor, which goes all the way back to pre-1921 when the CCP was formed. Um, this is how Mao Zedong cut his teeth in the 1920s. It's down in Hunan province. One of his first great written works was about cataloging the experience of, of, uh, of agricultural workers there and laborers there. Uh, so this is a, a core, core issue for neo-Maoists. So what about, what is their, uh, what is their uh, relationship with the, the student protests in 1989 in, Tian, in Tiananmen Square? What, what, did they play any role or how did they regard them? Yeah, really interesting here because I think our, our, we would initially think they're, they were all against it, right? Um, because this, was, this is obviously you had sort of folks rising up against the Communist Party. So I've, I've interviewed probably 
two dozen neo-Maoists who were participants in the student protests in 1989. And in fact, um, one of the first moments in which they, um, they moved towards a, a, a sort of a more oppositional stance um, was in 1989. You know, 1989 was not a, um, was many things to many people, right? It, it, it had many different people were in the square in Tiananmen or remember Tiananmen Square, what we call Tiananmen Square was a nationwide movement. Everyone was there for their own reason. People were there because they were disaffected with uh, price liberalization, which had happened the previous summer and led to skyrocketing of, of basic consumer goods. Some people were there because of the corruption within the Communist Party. Our, our narrative subsequently after the collapse of the Soviet Union became they were there because goddess of liberty, you know, Coca-Cola, Coca blue jeans. I should say some people were there for that too. Um, but the, the people I've interviewed who were there in, in the square in 1989, who are neo Maoists today, I say are, are broadly sympathetic to it because it was not a, a, a liberal pro-capitalist protest. It was a venting of frustration about a party state, which um, in some of that opposition and contestation had people who were frustrated that the party state had in the 1980s moved pretty resolutely against some core elements and institutions of socialist egalitarianism. Um, so um, in the specifics of the, of the 89 protest, not necessarily against it. Now, that being said, um, there is a, a, a violent reaction in neo-Maoists to weaponizing, what they would call weaponizing the legacy of Tiananmen Square to, to push back against the existing Communist Party today. So on, on June 4th of every year, you will find the neo-Maoists as much in arms about Western reporting on the legacy of Tiananmen Square or, or posts about Tiananmen Square as you will the CCP, because in their estimation, that's not about true historical remembrance. That's about political agitation to, to, to tear down the flag of the, of the Communist Party. What is their position on the protests in Hong Kong? Uh, that one's a little bit simpler. Uh, the, the, the position on the protests in Hong Kong this is a, another color revolution fomented by the imperialist United States through funding channels like the National Endowment for Democracy and the CIA to whip up and instigate opposition to the Communist Party. Um, that was the neo-Maoist line in, in last year, starting with, with the extradition bill. That was their line during, during, uh, in 2014. Uh, that was their line when color revolutions were, 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 uh, were building strength around the world. That was their line in 2008 when uh, uh, some Chinese who were carrying the Olympic torch were attacked in France. Um, this is, and I, this is a, a very old strain in Chinese political discourse of, of acute paranoia. Um, to be fair, of course, it's not a great stretch of the imagination that the CIA would be doing something like this, but... But in this specific instance, that's a, that's a neat, convenient answer for neo-Maoists because the alternative, and, and likewise for the CCP, the alternative is that there is actual organic grievances in Hong Kong about Communist Party rule. So this is a very convenient one. But this, this, um, uh, this thread that the United States is fomenting, actively fomenting revolutions in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, is absolutely down to the core of, of neo-Maoism. Given the uh, neo-Maoist nationalist tendencies, um, what is their their attitude towards the other ethnic groups within China, in particular the, the Uyghurs? Yeah, not good. Um, 
not good. And I think because they have now defined the Uyghur issue as a wedge for um, uh, for splittist powers to uh, try to 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 sort of split, divide, overthrow the CCP. So <clears throat> they have been. As much, now you can tell this is my own personal opinion. When I read discourse on Neo Maoist discourse on Xinjiang, it's wholly unsympathetic. It frames it a hundred percent as we have a homegrown terrorist problem that we need to stamp out through whatever resolute means possible. I was actually just, uh, uh, Sean, just before we got on, I was reading an article on um, on the Utopia website by the co-founder uh, of Utopia, a guy named Fan Jingang, called Winning a People's War Over American Hegemonism. Um, and in it, he's got this long list of grievances about how the United States is trying to split China. And one of them that he lists is, is what he calls the Xinjiang issue. Um, so they, they say this is a public security issue, this is a domestic issue. There's no solidarity with uh, ethnic minorities uh, in China. Again, remember that you know in China you have 94, 94, 95% of the population is is Han. So um, ethnic minorities have been very have been very marginalized in a lot of policy discourse um, and intellectual discourse. And neo Maoism has never deigned to take on the struggle of fighting for minority rights, especially I think because they see that as a, as a wedge that, that uh, opposition forces to the CCP have always weaponized. So we see this a lot in political discourse where if your enemy thinks one thing, you, 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 you adopt a, a, a alternative position, even if that puts you in an inconsistent position with your own self-held belief. And neo Maoists are very much in that, uh, in that corner right now. Given this, your research on neo-Maoism and it, it as a phenomenon in China, what is your assessment of, of Chinese socialism and the status of those four cardinal principles that we talked about earlier? If we're, if we're defining socialism as anything which has uh, connection to the broader socialist uh, sort of movement or ideological current that exists in a, in a, in a I think, a, a deeper, richer way, it's dead in China, but that's simply because the, the party state has smothered um, smothered the space where that discovery and discussion can occur. So um, it really happens far out at the margins now uh, because the party state has stultified the space for socialist discussion. If you want to define socialism, I mean, the party talks a lot about socialism, right? So we could be cheap here and say, well, socialism still exists because Xi Jinping thought is actually Xi Jinping thought about socialism with Chinese characteristics. Um, they still talk a lot about, about the, the importance of the socialist state. If you look at, I was just reading a speech by Xi Jinping the other day on state-owned enterprises. He talks about these as being pillars of the socialist economy. So we could be real cheap and say, of course, China is still a socialist state because they still talk a lot about, a lot about socialism. So, but, okay. So let me just interrupt you then. So for people like Xi Jinping, what does socialism mean? Do they still see themselves as building socialism in China? That's an awesome question, and uh, I'm I'm and I've, I've been working on a, a a piece that I'm calling "What's Communist About the Communist Party of China." Partly because I don't have an answer yet, to be honest, Sean. Because I'm I'm kind of thinking through this. My position now is, it's not fair to say that this is a, a charade. I do think Xi Jinping firmly believes. He is a thoroughgoing leftist and socialist. What I don't quite know is what's in his head when he defines that word. Um, 
this is a party state which oversees an economy of gross income inequality, uh, staggering accumulations of capital under private or privatized hands, um, is a, an extraordinary uh, uh, oppressor of, of labor activism and labor rights. So in many ways, it doesn't fit the bill for, a, for an, actual, an actual socialist uh, uh, state. But they spend a lot of time talking about socialism. They spend, if you dig into sort of deep theoretical journals, they are thinking through a, 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 social, a, a type of socialism. Now, absolutely, it's a, it's a strong state socialism. Um, but, but you know, when they talk about the role of state-owned enterprises as controlling the upstream commanding heights, which they still do overwhelmingly, when Xi Jinping's big campaign has been about poverty alleviation, um, and again, I want to qualify that by saying it's a certain type of poverty alleviation, not a radical one. Um, but, but there are definitely elements of socialism which imbue the system. Um, another long way of me in saying I don't really, I don't have a great, great pat answer for you because I think kind of either side of this or the extreme edges of this, which is Xi Jinping's a thoroughgoing socialist doesn't ring true, or Xi Jinping has not a socialist bone in his body doesn't ring true either. It is, you know, the party has always had its own variegated, confusing, intentionally heterodox definition of socialism, right? So in, in um, just after Mao came to power, they talked about cinified Marxism, the idea that we have gone our own Marxist path, right? We, 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 we inverted the script of, of how a Marxist revolution was supposed to happen. It didn't start in the cities and then emerge and then it spread outward, like 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 the, the classic definition, actually, that started in the countryside. Um, so they've always had their heterodox understanding of it. Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, while they were pursuing market reforms, I think thoroughly believed he was a socialist, right? Um, and so when he laid out his four cardinal principles, um, I think there was certainly an element of, um, we need to protect the socialist legacy from too much market reform. And Deng was always there sort of, steering the ship if he felt it was going too capitalist. Now I'm just thinking out loud, Sean, so I'll, 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 sh I'll shut up. That was Ju Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He has written for a range of publications, including Foreign Affairs and Foreign Policy, and his Chinese translations have appeared in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. He's the author of China's New Red Guards, the Return of Radicalism, and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.